All right, uh, we'll go ahead and get started. And uh, feel free to grab yourself a coffee and a few donuts. So uh, let's just go ahead and open up with a word of prayer before we begin. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the bright sunshine that's out. The weather's cool. The parking lot's a little icy, but there's a lot of people that uh, brave the elements to come and be with us this morning, and we're just so grateful and thankful, and it's such a blessing and encouragement to see all the faces out there in Sunday school this morning. So, Father, I pray that you would just uh, reward them and bless their efforts to make it out here by opening up our hearts and opening up our minds so that we can understand your word and know how to apply it to our hearts and our lives and our minds, that we could live it out before our community, that they may see the light that would, that's within us, that somehow they would be able to see past us and be able to see the Messiah who lives and dwells in us. Uh, we want to draw all men unto you, Lord, by the way we live our lives. And Lord, you said that um, uh, we should educate ourselves and, and know the word of God so that we can answer people for the hope that we have within us. And uh, so, Lord, even in Genesis, there's so many things that uh, we, we may know just the very basics, the very elementary Sunday school, children's Sunday school things about your word. And your word goes so much deeper, and it, and it touches on so many other texts from uh, the ancient world. And there's just so many tie-ins to the word of God. And help us to understand this history so that we can uh, correctly relay it to those who, who ask us questions and... and um, that we can combat the uh, secular intelligentsia who basically sometimes doctors uh, what they say to kind of fit their narrative. Uh, and, and they try so hard to disprove the word of God. And, and they have to do a lot of intellectual acrobatics to get around what the word of God says. And, and uh, when, when new texts and new archeology span comes to light, it just continues to prove your word. Uh, true over and over and over again. So Lord, just uh, help us as we learn today, and we love you and praise you and ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, so we are in Genesis chapter 11, but I'm going to read quickly a passage from Genesis 10 to kind of set the stage up uh, for what we're going to be studying today. We're going to talk a lot about Nimrod. Uh, Nimrod was of the descendant of Ham, uh, and a further descendant of Ham's son, Canaan. And we know that Canaan was cursed by Noah because of uh, what he did uh, when Noah got drunk and passed out. Uh, so Nimrod wasn't a really, really great guy. He was corrupt. He was pagan. Uh, he set himself up to be, you know, the first world ruler. So in Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 12, It says, Now Cush fathered Nimrod. He started to become, a, become mighty in the land. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now this is a very mysterious text, very mysterious phraseology. A mighty hunter before the Lord. What does that mean? It says, This is why it is said, Like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. So it's, it's kind of confusing. People don't really know what that means, that that phrase mystifies people. What does it mean for Nimrod to be a mighty hunter? Well, there's actually other uh, extra-biblical texts. I believe it's in the book of either Jubilees or Jasher, where it says the exact same thing about Esau, uh, that Esau was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And it kind of goes into a little bit more detail of what a mighty hunter before the Lord meant. It meant he was a hunter of souls. He not only killed animals, but he killed men. And it's not just that he was out killing men. He was also capturing men and enslaving them to help uh, build up his kingdom. Either they become laborers or they became drafted, conscripted soldiers. Um, so he, he collected souls. He collected men is basically what this means. And the same thing happened uh, with Esau. He was one of those type of guys, too according to extra-biblical text. So uh, again, it says, Now Cush fathered Nimrod. He started to become mighty in the land. Now the word mighty is gibor, and mighty men is often giborim. Now that phrase is very important in Hebrew phraseology because giborim ended up becoming a title for mighty men. They could have been mighty warriors or they could have been mighty rulers. 
Now, David's mighty men were also called Giborim. Now, there are some uh, instances where these Giborim uh, also refer to these warriors that were half human, half fallen angel, the Nephilim. Uh, Goliath was called a, a Gibor, a Giborim, a mighty man, a mighty warrior. So, uh, depending on uh, the context, this word mighty, it could either refer to a king or a warrior or even one of these fallen Nephilim, one of these human angelic hybrids that infested before the flood and it says after the flood as well. So, Cush fathered Nimrod. He started to become mighty in the land. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. This is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom included Babel, Erech, Achad, Kelne, in the land of Shinar. So the land of Shinar, actually the land of Shinar was a plain. It was a flat surface, a flat area. So it was a great place to, for a building project, which we'll see he started to build the Tower of Babel on the plains of Shinar. Now Shinar ended up becoming Babylon, what we know as Babylon. Okay, verse 11. From that land he went out to Assyria and built Nineveh, uh, Rechavoret, Kela, Rezin, between Nineveh and Kela. Uh, it is a great city. So Nimrod became the first world ruler. He kind of set himself up as a human deity. And we see that all these pagan nations had this habit or had this thing where their rulers, their kings, were considered part deity. They were part man, part God, whatever, you know, maybe it was Molech who they're related to or, you know, Baal who they're related to or whatever, but they claimed uh, godhood. And there was actually a pagan ritual that occurred during, back in those times, and actually it still occurs today in certain parts of the world, and it's, uh, it's called, uh, what was, what's the word here? It's called apotheosis. Now, apotheosis means a human ascending to godhood. So it was some pagan ritual that involved, involved sacrifice, involved incantation, involved invoking the name of pagan gods, where um, a person ascended to godhood. Now, usually this took place after someone's death, but in rare instances, it occurred in their lifetime. And Nimrod was one of these people where it occurred in his lifetime, where he claimed to be part deity. So that's kind of the backdrop for what we're about to study. So we see that Nimrod was, was uh, basically a despot. He was a tyrant. He was uh, um, a dictator. He was a world ruler. He ruled by force. He ruled with an iron fist. He enslaved people. He killed people. Uh, he used people however he wanted to. And he built a lot of cities. And that was one way to kind of... Um, ensure somebody's immortality. Because if you forgot somebody's name, it's as if they never existed. So if they built a city and the city was connected to them in some way, you would continue to remember who they were. You would continue to remember their name. And the spirit of Nimrod is alive and well today because we still talk about him. <laughs> There's still a lot of things that, that in this world that are connected to him. So that was a way of achieving immortality and another way that they thought they could achieve godhood. So we begin in Genesis 11.1. 1. It says, now the entire earth had the same language with the same vocabulary. That's pretty convenient. You know, I mean, that, that, that makes work a lot easier. I mean, uh, right before Sunday school, uh, Bryson was talking about how he's having to learn French in order to be an EMT because you got to be bilingual here in New Brunswick because language tends to be uh, a barrier. And if you don't know French, it can keep you from some pretty good jobs and pretty good positions. So it's, it's advantageous to know as many languages as you possibly can. Uh, so language could be a barrier when you're, when you're trying to communicate. And, Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember one of my friends from Nigeria, he'd lived in the States for like 20-some years. So he knew English pretty well, but every once in a while, he would forget a word. And we were talking, and he was trying to make a point and give an example. He said, you know, it's like a conch. I said, what? He says, a conch. You know a conch. I'm like, no, I, I, I don't know what you mean. He says, yes, it's like a conch. It's black, it's white, it stinks. I said, you mean skunk? 
And he starts laughing. He goes, I, I was wondering why you couldn't understand what I was trying to say. So he forgot the word for skunk and he called it a conk. So, you know, and then uh, one of my friends, he's a first generation German. Uh, his parents uh, were from Germany, and his father actually fought in the war for the Nazis. It's not that he wanted to, he had to. Well, he ended up becoming a prisoner of war, and he was captured by the Canadians. And the Canadians treated him so nice, he's like, man, after the war's over, I'm coming here. I'm going to live in Canada. But he only got as far as Ohio. So uh, one of the stories is that when his mother was out shopping, she was trying to buy some cabbage because she was going to make homemade sauerkraut. So she couldn't remember the word for cabbage. So she goes to the grocery store, goes to the producer and says, uh, yes, I would like to have two head of garbage, please. <laughs> so she said garbage instead of cabbage. So language could be a barrier. So it was, it was advantageous to Nimrod to have this united kingdom that all spoke one language. And it said that English is the basically the world language today. I mean, just about every nation, there's somebody who knows English. At least the, the leaders of those nations know English or know somebody that knows English because that's kind of like the language of trade and of commerce and of rulership in the world. Um, okay, so it says, now the earth was had the same language with the same vocabulary. A lot of people say, well, what was that? It was believed to be Paleo-Hebrew. So it was basically the same language that Adam and Eve spoke when they were created and placed in the garden. And it's believed that it was ancient Paleo-Hebrew. Oh, let me mention this about Nimrod too. I kind of went a little bit quick. Now, one thing about Nimrod is pretty interesting, is that there is some evidence to link Nimrod to the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's believed that Gilgamesh and Nimrod are one and the same. But of course, the Epic of Gilgamesh kind of rehashes the flood story, doesn't it? But it kind of puts its own pagan twist to that flood story. So it kind of like corrupts the story of Noah. Now, the Epic of Gilgamesh, the manuscripts for that is older than Genesis, but it doesn't mean that it was written, uh, that it was more true because Genesis was written later. Because Genesis was oral, all the way up until the time of Moses, and Moses finally wrote it down and codified it, but it was passed on orally from Adam all the way to Moses. So just because you, there's texts in the world that are, that are technically older, like the Epic of Gilgamesh was, was penned before the book of Genesis was penned, doesn't mean it's more authoritative, doesn't mean that it's more true, it's just somebody put their own story down on paper before somebody else did. But because of the oral tradition that was passed down from uh, Adam, all the way to Moses, it was already an established, a well-established history before Moses actually put pen to paper, so to speak. So it's believed that Gilgamesh uh, is the same as Nimrod. Now, Gilgamesh claimed to be one-third God. And we had already discussed that Nimrod claimed deity, claimed godhood. So either he was just kind of totally faking it, or he had some of that Nephilim DNA in his system because it said that there were giants in the land before the flood in those days and afterwards. So the fallen angels kept trying to perpetuate this corrupt human line to thwart the prophecy of Genesis 3.15 where it says that the seed of the woman was going to overcome the seed of the serpent. So the seed of the serpent said if we can corrupt the human DNA, then there won't be no more pure humans, and therefore the seed of the woman will never be born. It won't have a chance to be born. So that was the whole plan of the fallen angels is to try to corrupt, to make us not human, to make us unredeemable, because the prophecy was that the seed of the woman, a pure human being, would come and redeem mankind, not some hybrid, not some corrupt uh, genetic. Now also, Nimrod changed names quite often. So he was first known as Nimrod, and then, like I said, that it's possible that he was also known as Gilgamesh. But eventually, he became known in Genesis 14.1 as Amraphel. <clears throat> it says, Now it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar. Where did Nimrod rule? He ruled in Shinar. So it's believed that Amraphel of Genesis 14.1 is the same as Nimrod of Genesis 11. Now we see in Genesis 14 that Nimrod lost world ruler status. 
You know, what does, what does the scripture say in the New Testament? Something about, uh, con- about a person considering the cost before building a tower. Basically, it's saying if you don't consider the cost before building a tower, you're going to build and not be able to finish it, and then you're going to lose face. You're going to be humiliated. Well, that's exactly what happened in the Tower of Babel debacle, is that Nimrod was humiliated. So he got bumped down a few notches in the eyes of the world as a ruler, and uh, at this time it was uh, Cheddar Laomer, king of Elam basically took the reins of world domination and it was like Nimrod or um, as we could say Amraphel was kind of his subservient. So eventually Nimrod was still alive but he lost status and he lost power. Okay, so those are some interesting backgrounds of Nimrod. Okay, so we already discussed how everybody had the same language and up until the Tower of Babel, if you look at other world um, cultures, other peoples and look at their histories, they have virtually the same creation story and flood story. But after the creation and flood story, their mythologies and their histories diverge widely and greatly. So they always have a creation story where some God brought order out of chaos. That's exactly what God did in Genesis 1. Says the world was without form and void. It was chaotic. And he brought order to that chaos. Well, in these other pagan renditions of creation, no matter what people group you choose, there's always going to be a god fighting another god of chaos and bringing order out of that chaos and creating the world. Virtually the same thing as it says in Genesis. Then there's also a flood story, a flood account. So every people group in the world has a, a story of the flood. And that's because we were the same people, had the same language up until the Tower of Babel. So it would stand to reason we would have the same histories. And after that, everybody's uh, histories and mythologies diverge from that point. Okay, verses 2 and 4. When they traveled eastward, they found a valley plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them until they are hard. So they used the bricks for stone and tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower whose top reaches into the heavens. So let's make a name for ourselves or else we will be scattered over the face of the whole land. Can anybody tell me what's wrong with this picture? (laughs) Many things. So by reading this, this was a declaration by Nimrod and his people that they were willfully knowingly, purposely rebelling against the God of heaven. Because what was God's command? Be fruitful and multiply and scatter about the whole earth. Spread about the whole earth. They said, no, we don't want to. We don't have to listen to you. You're not the boss of us. We're our own God. We're our own people. We're cutting the apron strings from you, God. And we're going to do what we want. So they said, come. Let's forget about what God said. He told us to be fruitful, multiply, scatter about the whole earth. No, we're going to stay right here and we're going to build a name for ourselves. We're going to show God who's who. We're going to show God who's boss. So they rebelled against God by not scattering and populating the earth. They just stayed in one place. So this is a problem. Now what they built was called a ziggurat. Now, a ziggurat is, is basically a pyramid, but it's a step pyramid. So it's not sloped like we see the pyramids in Egypt. They're like leveled. They're stepped. So, you know, it's a wide base and it just gets narrow, more narrow at the top, but they're, they're staggered in steps and levels so they can be ascended and so they can be climbed. What was so important about a ziggurat, a pyramid? Basically, mountains or high elevated places is supposedly the abode of the gods. So just about every mountain, a god took residence there and said, this is, this is my kingdom, this is my tower from where I look and view the world from. Yeah, there's ziggurats in Mexico. There's ziggurats all over the world. So that kind of also shows how we were one people at one time, because in Mexico, in China, even there's even been some found at the bottom of the ocean in, a, in the Atlantic Ocean, uh, even in the states, in Illinois, there are step pyramids everywhere. 
So it shows how we were one people and had a common culture, had a common um, um, architecture at one time. So it's all connected. So this ziggurat was basically an artificial mountain. Basically, all the mountains were taken by other deities. So no human could ascend and say, well, I'm claiming this for, for I'm going to be God. I'm going to claim this. So they had to build an artificial mountain, which was the Tower of Babel. It was built like a, a conical mountain. It was built in a pyramid, a ziggurat shape. And so Nimrod was going to rule the world from the top of the Tower of Babel. Now, there's also evidences that there was more to it than just a tower, that it was built in such a way, mathematically and occultically, that it also doubled as a calendar, where certain points of the tower uh, pointed to certain stars or the rising of the sun, setting of the sun, certain solstices and certain parts of the year. And we see these megalithic calendars all over the world, Stonehenge, is one of these ancient megalithic calendars where the stones are lined up where you know the sun comes up through one of the arches during the summer solstice and you can see the sun on the other side in the winter and yada yada so there was a lot of paganism that was built into this tower so it was a place of worship it was a place of of um you know uh, where nimrod was going to rule so there's a lot of mystical and satanic type things that were connected because this Tower of Babel was going to become uh, Nimrod's mountain, cosmic mountain that he would rule from because he was planning on being a world ruler, but not only a world ruler, but God. He was going to go through this apotheosis, this, this ascension into godhood. Um, now, we see that uh, Yeshua, and I've mentioned this before, he was on Mount Hermon, and that's what we know as the Mount of Transfiguration. So the, the Mount Hermon is where supposedly the fallen angels in the rebellion of heaven fell to. And that became their cosmic mountain of rulership, where Satan basically set up his kingdom on Mount Hermon and the other pagan gods, the angels that became the pagan gods of the world, spread to other mountains and began to rule other mountains. So they kind of split the world up into territories. So Mount Hermon was where the rebellion against God from the heavenlies really began. So it was no coincidence that Yeshua, Jesus, was up there during the Feast of Tabernacles. And it says that he was transfigured where his, um, his, his clothes and his face turned radiant white and shone. So basically, these angels were called shining ones. They were called the fallen shining ones. And it was said, according to other extra-biblical literature, that their, their skin even had a shiny sheen to it. And I, th I think Hollywood's not stupid. They know. Hollywood knows of these pagan religions and these pagan manuscripts. So guess what they do? They try to make the fallen angels look nice and pretty and romantic. Guess who else had shiny skin? Edward the Vampire of Twilight. I don't think that's no coincidence. Used to, vampires were seen as evil, demonic. They were the undead. They were eternally damned. And, and, and the, the vampire is such an iconic figure of the Antichrist. Because the, the, Jesus Christ, Yeshua the Messiah, he came to shed his blood to save mankind. Whereas the vampire, representing the Antichrist, sucks the blood of mankind to save his own life. What a reversal. So these Hollywood writers wrote in that aspect where Edward the vampire, his, when he's in the sun, his, his skin is shiny like diamonds. That is a reference to the fallen angels. That is a reference to the fallen ones. So when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, he was transfigured. He's like, you call yourself the B'nai Ha Elohim, the sons of God? You call yourselves the shining one? No, I am the son of God, and I am the ultimate shining one. I am the light of the world. You've corrupted mankind. I'm taking this world back. Starting here at Mount Hermon where it all began, I'm reversing all your edicts. I'm reversing your rule. I'm reversing your, your, your uh, effects upon this world. And I don't think it's a coincidence that a major part of Jesus' ministry was casting out demons, was casting out these disembodied spirits of these giants, which became what we know as demons today. And that was a big part of Jesus' ministry. So he was just reversing all the corruption that the fallen angels had perpetuated since the time of the Tower of Babel, well, since the time of the garden, the fall in the garden, actually. Um, now, God himself had a mountain that he claimed for himself. Does anybody know which mountain this is? 
Sinai, also called Mount Horeb. So it went by two names, Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, or Sinai. Now, interesting connection with Mount Sinai. We know that that's where Moses first encountered God. He was tending his father-in-law's sheep, and he sees this fire on this mountain, goes up to investigate, and there's this bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And it says that God appeared to him through that burning bush. Moses, take off your sandals because you're on holy ground now. So this is where he says, when you deliver the children of Israel from Egyptian bondage, you to prove that I'm God, you're going to worship me on this very mountain. And it was that very mountain that the Ten Commandments were given, that God literally, literally came down and chiseled out stone from that mountain to create the tablets which he put the Ten Commandments on. And it created this crevice in the rock. And that is the place where Moses hid and God covered him with his hand. He says, you can't see my front side. Basically, you'll die and go blind. No man can see me and live, but I'll permit you to see my hinder parts, my backside as I pass by. So God pronounced his coming and said, I'm compassionate and I'm merciful. He covered Moses in the cleft of the rock. God passed by. God took his hand away and also Moses seen his hinder parts. Now, there's another connection to Mount Sinai that you may not know. Elijah the prophet. He had a big old contest with the God of this world, Baal. Baal the storm God. Baal is none other than Satan himself. Because in the New Testament, he's called Beelzebub. And so Jesus basically connects Beelzebub, a.k.a. Baal, to Satan, Lucifer himself. So here's Elijah on Mount Carmel, which was one of the mountains that Baal claimed as his own, where his worshipers worshipped him. And we all know the contest at Mount Carmel and how, you know, the, the, the prophets of Baal were slashing and cutting themselves and crying out, hear us, Baal, hear us. And, you know, and uh, Elijah got a little brave. He's like, cry a little louder. Maybe Baal's on the potty and he can't hear you. If you look at the Hebrew, that's basically what Elijah's saying. He says, your God has taken a dump. He's busy. He can't hear you because he's pooping. That's basically what it says in the Hebrew. He's making fun of Baal, basically saying he's not God. He's, he's just as mortal as you are. And in Psalm 82, I believe, one of the sentences pronounced against the fallen angels is that they will eventually die like men. So Elijah was making fun of them. Cry a little. Maybe he's gone on vacation. Maybe he's off on a long journey and he can't hear you. Cry a little louder. So we know that Baal's sacrifice was never consumed. Elijah says, it's my turn. He rebuilds the altar of God. In the middle of a drought, no less, digs a pit and pours water, precious water, that they probably needed to drink, irrigate their crops. How dare Elijah use our water? But he saturated the sacrifice in the altar, and we know that God answered by fire. So he won a great contest. But after that, where does Elijah end up? He ran away because he's, he, he's on the lamb because the prophets of Baal and, and Jezebel, was it Jezebel? Yeah, was after Elijah and going to kill him. So where did he run to? He ran to a mountain, to a mountain cave. That mountain cave was Sinai, Mount Horeb. The cave that he hid himself in was the very cave that God etched out to create the tablets for the Ten Commandments. He knew God could be found there. He knew that was God's mountain. And he tried desperately to hear God, but God was not in, in the whirlwind. God was not in the earthquake. God was not in the fire. He was in that still small voice. So there's that connection about Sinai and Elijah. So many of you may have not known that. But so when Elijah, you know, he felt defeated and he felt like his life was at stake, he ran to where he knew God would be. He ran to Mount Sinai. To the, yeah, he ran to where his faith was, yeah. Yeah, his faith was tested too. So, um, so th that's the importance of these mountains and why Nimrod built the Tower of Babel. It was like this artificial cosmic mountain that he was building. And that's where he was going to ascend to godhood. And he was going to rule because, you know, wh what does it say? Um, it says that they're going to ascend to the heights and basically take over. Let me read to you what it says in the Legends of the Bible by Lewis Ginsburg regarding Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. It says, 
The iniquity and godlessness of Nimrod reached their climax in the building of the Tower of Babel. His counselors had proposed the plan of erecting such a tower. Nimrod agreed to it. And it was executed in Shinar by a mob of 600,000 men. The enterprise was neither more nor less than rebellion against God. And there were three sorts of rebels among the builders. The first party spoke, let us ascend into the heavens and wage war with him. The second party spoke, let us ascend to the heavens and set up idols and pay worship to them there. The third party spoke, let us ascend into the heavens and ruin them with our bows and our spears. They were going to use this cosmic mountain to leap into the heavens to to storm heavens and, and take over heaven and kick God off his throne. They were trying to give Satan his pla- the place that he wanted back when because Sa- Satan fell from heaven, right? Even Jesus said, I was there. I saw Satan fall like lightning. Now, Jasher, which is actually mentioned several times in the scriptures, and the book still exists today. The book of Jasher, it says, And when they were building, they built themselves a great city, a very high and strong tower, and on account of its height, the mortar and the brick did not reach the builders in their ascent to it until they went up and had completed a full year. To take one brick to the top of Babel, it took them a year to transport one brick from the bottom of the tower to place it on the top. And after that, they reached the builders and gave them the, the mortar and the bricks. Thus was it done daily. And behold, these ascended and others descended the whole day. Now listen to this. This is how sad, how sad the state of humanity was at this time. And if a brick should fall from the hands and got broken, they would weep over it. Oh no, we lost a brick. It took us a whole year to get this brick up to the top. Oh no, what are we going to do? And then is this what it says? They would weep over it. And if a man fell and died... None would even look at him. Well, too bad for you, Bob. Sucks being you. Well, there'll be another man to replace you. We're not worried about you. But oh no, we lost this brick. They They cared more about a brick than a human life. That's how corrupt Nimrod and his subjects were. Okay, now... We know that it was at the Tower of Babel that the languages were confounded. So let's, let's keep reading. Verse 5, it says, Then Adonai came down to see the city and the tower that the sons of man had built. And Adonai said, Look, these people are one, and all, have, all of them have the same language. So this is what they've begun to do. So basically God was saying, Yep, they're rebelling against me. I told them to scatter. They haven't scattered. They're staying right where they're at. And then it says, now nothing that they plan to do will be impossible. That is, that is a testament to the power of unity, of human unity, even in godless human unity. Man can do amazing things. We have God. We have Jesus in our heart. If we as believers in Messiah Yeshua could unite together as these pagans united in rebellion against God, nothing can be impossible for us either. When are we going to get it through our thick skulls to set aside our petty church differences and doctrinal differences and unite on the cardinal things and unite and be a force to be reckoned with in this world for God? Satan's all about uniting the people against God in our culture and our society, and they are winning because they're in unity and they're rebellion against God. But if we were unity in our observance and obedience to God, we can give them a run for their money. Now, nothing they plan will be impossible. Seven, come, let us go down and confuse their languages there. So let us. A lot of people is saying that that refers to the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But it also um, is referring to the angels that did not rebel against God. God's heavenly divine counsel, because they too in an aspect are made in the image of God, not in the same way we're made in the image of God, but they too are, they're divine beings. So God has a a council of divine beings, a council of angels. And even though he doesn't need these council of angels, he wants to involve his creation in what he does. 
God certainly doesn't need us. God could snap his finger and the whole world could be saved. He could snap his finger and all the evil of the world would be gone. He could do anything. But God has chosen to use us to be his image bearers in order to evangelize the world, to to make the world a better place, and to carry out God's wishes. Because he wants to involve us in his creation. No different than the angels. He wanted to involve the angels in what he was doing. He didn't need to. He's God. But because he loves his creation and wants to have a personal relationship with everything that he's created, he's included these angels in his divine counsel. And Psalm 82 goes into specifics about this divine counsel. We see God using this divine counsel and asking advice from the divine counsel in the book of Job. Because it says the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan shows up with him because he's a son of God too. He's a Beneha Elohim, though fallen. Hey, Satan, where have you been? Oh, you know, to and fro, running to, to and fro about the earth inside and out it. And then in one of the, uh, one of the kings, it's either Kings or Chronicles, where God actually asks his divine council members, his, his angels, he's like, okay, who's going to go down and become a lying spirit in, in, in the mouth of these prophets just so this king will get his? One of, the, one of the divine beings, one of the angels says, I'll do it. Okay, go for it. So he includes all his creation in everything he does, even though he doesn't have to because he's all powerful. He's God. But that's how loving he is because he wants us to be involved. And you know how great it is when you're a little kid and you know your dad could have built something by himself. Let's say dad was building a garage or a woodshed. He could have done it by himself, but all the joy that you had as a son was says, hey, son, want to come and help me build this woodshed? Sure, dad. You carried the wood. You, 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 you handed him the tools when he needed it. Maybe he even let you saw a piece of wood. He didn't have to let you do it, but he did it because he loved you and wanted to spend time with you. Or mama, you want to bake Christmas cookies with me? Your mom doesn't need your help baking cookies. She's done it a million times. But what joy you had to be involved in making those cookies, right? Because that's the way God is. He wants to include his creation in what he does. Same as earthly parents, why we involve our kids in what we do. We don't have to. We don't need them. We don't have to have their help. But we want to involve them because we we love them. We want to relate to them. And we want to teach them something. So that's why it says, let us. So it's referring to the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Because John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And it says that the word, being Jesus Christ, Yeshua the Messiah, spoke everything into creation. So you have the Godhead where he says, let us, but it is also referring to God's divine council members. The angels that stayed loyal to God and didn't fall. So it's, let us go down and confuse their languages so that they will not understand each other's language. So Adonai scattered them from there over the face of the entire land, and they stopped building the city. Nimrod was humiliated because he couldn't build this tower. People couldn't understand each other anymore, so the building stopped. In the New Testament, consider the cost in building a tower lest you don't have the means to finish it, right? Verse 9, this is why it is named Babel, and that's where we get our English word for Babel. It's just a bunch of Babel, a babbling brook. It means just a bunch of ununderstood un, un, un nonsense is what it means. Name the place Babel because... God confused the languages of the entire world there. And from there, God scattered them all over the face of the entire world. All right, so we see the confounding of the languages. Now, the Bible talks about there being 70 root nations. So all the nations of the world that we have today started from 70 root nations. And from there, they split up. So that's why you have some some nations that are related to each other, like Rome and Greece, they're different peoples, but they basically came from the same stock. And they basically have the same pantheon, the same stories, it's just the names are different. So you had 70 languages, 70 root nations, and Moses' council, how many elders? 70 elders. How many elders of the Jewish Sanhedrin? 70 elders. How many bulls were sacrificed during Sukkot? 70 bulls, one for each nation. So 70 represents the nations. So there were originally 70 root nations and 70 root languages. And in one of the, uh, in the book of Jasher, when Joseph uh, became second in command of Egypt, it said that Pharaoh had 70 steps up to his throne. 
and you ascended as many steps as as many languages you knew. At that time, when Joseph was first called out of prison, he could only go up three steps. So he knew Hebrew, he knew Egyptian, and he probably knew some Canaanite dialect. But it said that when God was getting ready to set him up to be the second command, that an angel visited him and basically, you know how like on that movie, The Matrix, where, you know, they, 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 they take that little, that little computer cord and hook it in the back of Neo's brain and all of a sudden he knows jujitsu. All of a sudden he's downloaded all this information. All of a sudden he knows his stuff, right? He can do anything. Well, kind of similar with Joseph, it said that an angel sat and taught him, basically downloaded to him all the 70 languages. So the next time he met with Pharaoh, according to the book of Jasher, he was able to ascend all 70 steps. And there was a rule, an unwritten rule kind of in Egypt that somebody couldn't rule Egypt unless they knew all the languages of the world. Bonus, right? So some interesting legends connected with that. Uh, so we have Babel, the confounding of the languages at Babel. God reversed the fall of the angels on Mount of Transfiguration, right? We already discussed that. So we reversed the fall of the angels in that aspect. He reversed Babel too. Where did he reverse Babel at? Can anybody tell me? In the New Testament, where did God reverse the effects of the Tower of Babel? Yeah, that's right, Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. All right, it says, it was the day of Shavuot, Pentecost, had come. They were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And tongues like fire spread out and appeared to them and settled on each of them. And they were filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit enabled them to speak it out. Now, Jewish people were staying in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven, all 70 nations. And when the sound and when this sound came, the crowd gathered and they were bewildered because each was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are all these that are speaking, aren't they Galileans? How is it that each of us hear in our own birth language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and those living in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, towards uh, Cyrene, visitors from Rome, but both Jew Jewish people and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we heard them declaring in our own tongues the mighty deeds of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to each other, what does this mean? Everybody spoke one language. And they use that ability to understand and speak one language to rebel against God and to create this Tower of Babel. God confounded the languages. And in order to spread the good news of the gospel, to spread the good news of faith, to spread the good news of salvation, to spread the good news of the Messiah coming, he reversed the effects of Babel in Acts chapter 2 during the Pentecost. And everybody understood God's word and the gospel in their own language. How awesome! How amazing is that? So we're seeing some New Testament connections to this story of Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. Okay. All right. We're going to breeze through the rest of this because uh, we're running out of time here. So basically, verses 10 through 26 gives the genealogy of Shem, Noah's son, Shem. Um, right. He followed God. He was, he was actually Melchizedek. He was the priest of Salem, the priest of Jerusalem. So he was a Melchizedekian priest, which is why Jesus is priest. He's not Levite, because Levite is a younger, subservient order of priesthood to the Melchizedekian priesthood. That's why Jesus could be prophet, priest, and king at the same time. So here are the names. Shem, Arphaxed, uh, Selah, Eber, Peleg, Ru, Sarug, Nahor, Terah, Abram, which eventually became Abraham. And as I've taught you already in this class, names are important because they're prophetic. They tell a story. They tell a narrative. So putting the meanings of these names together, this is the sentence that comes out of the line of Shem. With a name, he releases the offshoot to shoot and divide, to befriend the snoring wanderers, to become an exalted father of nations. That sounds like gibberish. What the heck does that mean? That's weird. Okay, Shem means name, Arphaxed means 
uh, one that rebases. Shila means offshoot. Eber means a shoot. Uh, Peleg means division. The world was divided in the, in the days of Peleg. That was the Tower of Babel when he was born. Uh, Ruah means friend. Sarug means firmness. Nahor means snorer, comically enough. Terah means wanderer. And Abram means father of height, but Abraham means father of nations. So we get, with a name, he releases the offshoots to shoot and divide, to, befri to befriend the snoring wanderers, to become an exalted father of nations. This is what it means. With God's command, God commanded to be fruitful and multiply, to scatter and fill the whole earth. And that's what that means. With a name, he releases his offshoots to shoot and divide, be fruitful and multiply. So it says, to befriend the snoring wanderers. It's talking about Japheth and Ham who are spiritually asleep. Noah's other sons that became pagans. And what does the prophecy say about Ham and about Japheth? In Genesis chapter 9, this is the prophecy. It says, verse 9, starting with 25. Cursed is Canaan, the lowest of slaves he will be to his brothers. So Canaan was the one who overtook the promised land. They were the ones that cohorted with the fallen angelic realm, become genetically polluted. They were the ones that were kicked out of the promised land to give room for Abraham and his descendants because that was their rightful inheritance. And a lot of these times, these, these Canaanite nations became the woodcutters and the, and the water bearers of Israel. They were the slaves. Blessed be the, God, the Adonai, God of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant and may God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem. So Japheth is, is inhabiting or living with Shem, being taught of Shem, sitting at Shem's feet learning. Where did the Gentiles learn about God? From the descendants of Shem, from the Jews. Salvation came from the Jews. May God enlarge Japheth, may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his slave. So it, it says to befriend the snoring wanderers, that's Japheth and Ham who are asleep, and to become an exalted father of nations. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. So how did you become a son of Abraham? You weren't born Jewish. You guys are Gentiles. You're from Japheth. How in the world can you claim to be children of Abraham? Okay, so baptism, salvation, you guys accepted the son of Abraham, which was Jesus Christ, Yeshua the Messiah. You became sons of Abraham through faith, right? So that's, that's what that means. All right, let's try to wrap her up here. Okay, verses in chapter 11, verses 27 through 32, it says, These are Terah's genealogies. Uh, Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran fathered Lot. Haran died before Terah, his father, in the land of his birth, in Ur of the Chaldees. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. The daughter of Haran, father of Milcah, is Izcah. Sarah was barren and did not have children. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, Haran's son, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, uh, his son Abram's wife, and took them out of Ur of the Chaldees to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah's days were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. That's a mouthful. That's a lot. So let me give you a little bit of extra biblical background to this narrative of Genesis 11, 27 through 32. According to the books of Jubilees and Jasher, Terah served Nimrod as an advisor, as an astrologer, and as an idol maker. So Terah was part of Nimrod's court. But when things went south with the Tower of Babel and all this kind of stuff, it was no longer safe for Terah. Also, when Abraham was born, it's interesting. You know how like the Magi read the stars and knew that the Messiah was going to be born and two years after Jesus' birth, they made their way to Bethlehem, blah, 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 right? Virtually the same story is told about Abram, that there is a prophecy in the stars that, that Terah... And Nimrod's astrologers and advisors notice saying, you know what, Nimrod, there's going to be a king that's going to come and he's going to take you over. 
So just like how Pharaoh killed all the male babies in Egypt, just like Herod killed all the male babies in Judea, Nimrod started killing all the babies. Well, Terah just had Abraham at that time. So it was, it was kind of pinpointed that Abram, or Abram was going to be this one that was going to dispose Nimrod. So Nimrod's saying, give me your son, I'll compensate you for him, and I'll kill him, and then the threat's gone. Terah didn't do this. Terah gave a slave baby instead of his own, hid Abraham just like Jochebed hid Moses. And so Abraham, guess where Abraham went? Abraham went to live with Noah and Shem. So they knew all that Adam knew. Abraham learned about the one true God of Israel, that there's only one God, not many gods. He learned everything that he was supposed to learn with, with Shem and Noah. So after Abram grew up, according to Jasher and Jubilees, he returned back to his father Terah. His father at this time was, was left Nimrod's court, but was still an idol maker. That's how he made his money. And one day, this is a very fascinating story. One day, Terah said, listen, son, I've got to go run some errands. I want you to keep shop for me. Abraham was disgusted at all these pagan gods he saw. There's only one God. So basically what he did is he smashed all the idols and left the biggest one and put an axe in the biggest idol's hand. His father came back and said, Abraham, Abraham, what did you do? What happened? What happened to all the gods? He says, well, dad, the largest one got jealous of all the little ones, took this axe and killed them all. Oh, son, I didn't raise you to be a liar. Don't lie to me. This isn't true. He's like, yeah, dad, it's not true. Just like these gods you made aren't real. Just like they're not true. There's only one true God. So Nimrod got wind that Abram was back in town. So he's like, okay, I'm going to get rid of this guy one way or another. History repeats itself over and over. According to Jasher and Jubilees, Nimrod was going to take Abram and throw him in a fiery furnace. Sound familiar? <laughs> Sounds like the three Hebrew children in Daniel, right? Well, Haran was listening to Abram, his, his brother, was starting to buy into Abram's monotheism. And so when Abram was thrown into the fire, Haran said, well, if Abram's going to survive, I'm going to survive. So he decided to, to, to go into the fire too. He perished. That's why it says that Haran died before his father, Terah. Because he died right before his eyes in the fiery furnace. Because Haran, his heart wasn't right. It was for pride that he did this. He, did, he, he was beginning to believe, but he didn't truly believe in, in Abram's God. So that's why it says in the scripture that he died before his father, Terah. So Abram survives the fiery furnace. Nimrod has to let him go. And then they, move, they, they leave and they move to Ur of the Chaldees. And they get out of where, they are, of where they're at. So that's just kind of interesting legends connected to this passage to kind of maybe help you understand a little bit things better, a little bit more of the narrative. So... Uh, Abraham came from a, a family of pagan idol worshipers, interestingly enough. Okay, and so he's the one, the first one to believe in the one true God and bring his family back to faith. All right, so we've ran out of time. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the amazing things that we've learned and discovered in your word. Help us to remember them, to recall them, to apply them to our lives, and to teach others. We love you and praise you and ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen.